Hey, what's going on? Hello. Hey everyone. Hi. Sorry to disappoint that our pre is not here today. Well, all right. <laughs> oh good. I've been absent for for weeks, so he, he gets a one free pass. Yes, he's he said he misses us though, so he'd rather wish. Yeah, Antonio. In in Harpreet's honor, you're wearing a uh, an interesting and bright shirt. So uh, good start. I, I had to I had to I had to fit in. I know I can't be wearing a shirt. He's always wearing the nice Hawaiian shirts and stuff. <laughs> in honor of data, though, I had to do the the rubber ducky debugging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, I thought that that was a joke when I first was starting in the field. And one of my professors like, no, it's a thing. I was like, what do you mean it's a thing? He's like, yeah, when you you don't know your code, just talk to the ducky and it will just make all your code issues go away or a lot of them. And I've had it ever since. It's a good does tool. It, <laughs> does anybody else have a ducky or something else they talk to? <laughs> when their code doesn't I work. A, uh, I have a dinosaur like nightlight that I have on my desk downstairs that I talk to for for better course a lot. <laughs> I have this. Okay. So, okay. It's kind of what I rest my headphones on when I'm not wearing them. So uh, it's, it's kind of there. You know, if I want to talk to it or you know take up some Shakespeare, maybe a long time. The thing I always use is a. Uh, I always have a legal pad next to me when I'm coding. So, cause I always jot, I can't tell you how invaluable this is. Um, cause the amount of things that you'll forget, the little details, there's, uh, there's quite a few actually. So. No, that's awesome. So what's your, do you just do pen and paper or do you do like on, on your iPhone or something? Does that count? Pen and paper is fine, but whatever, whatever floats your boat, just a way that you, I think like the, it's kind of like rubber ducking, but more interactive in the sense where you can draw stuff out and, I guess, especially when you're doing analysis, like making sure you're just like writing down number, like exactly what Ken has. Yeah. Just, you know, I find that it's super useful. So. I like that. I just noticed that when I have, I have things to write down and then, or like I have things in my mind and as soon as I start writing down, I'm like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Maybe like, I don't have as many things in my mind then as I thought I did. Or more, and you might just be overwhelmed by starting the process of writing down. <laughs> I have so it's many. Like, do I really so want many, to go down this path? I have so many whiteboards just sitting around because, like, I go through as a scribbling constantly. If if I was using a notepad, I'd go through like three a week. So I'm like, ah, scribble it, erase it, scribble it, erase it. Uh, highly recommend the like eight by eleven whiteboards with the with the markers. Wow. People that are currently joining, they're like, wait, that's not her pre. Something's, something's off here. <laughs> we have a Walmart greeter who's joining us. We have Tom who is connecting. Eric's here. Welcome. Hey, what's up? Hello. Oh, we have another. Let me see. We have multiple Eric's now. Awkward now, but still, I feel really welcome. Not good. All right. Time to now now all right the hour the artist of data science or pre he could be here with us but unfortunately he's being tortured at a like a 
Oceanside Airbnb with a lot of free food and drinks. Um, he'd rather be talking data science, but unfortunately, uh, he couldn't. So that's why, um, yes, it's a very, very tough. So I, I thought I'd try to, to help him out. I even got myself a, a nerd for this occasion. Uh, my wife said I look very weird, but it's okay. She doesn't understand as much fashion as he does. <laughs> so just before we start, we want to make a quick note that this week on the Artists of Data Science, a new episode with Tiffany Schlein. Tiffany Schlein is a uh, founder of the Webby Awards. And this the conversation is about taking one day a week off from technology to really uh, focus, focus on yourself. And, you know, just, just unplug. So um, we're to start this week about something not related, I guess, to, to data science. Um, thank you, Russell. <laughs> Didn't go and have to push your game. No problem, Russell. I'll give you some advice afterwards. But I wanted to ask something that was on my mind. Uh, I know a lot of you guys here, well, we're all somehow related into data. But I wanted to open it up and ask, did you think that you were going to be in this field that you were in? Rather, than, I know it's like a little bit weird because data is kind of a new field. It hasn't been around forever. But what was something that you thought you were going to do growing up or maybe when you were like in school, college, compared to what you're doing now? Uh, I'll open it up and ask uh, Mark. Did you always wanted to be a scientist or a Walmart greeter or anything else? Uh, data science came out of left field for my for my career. Um, I was one hundred percent thinking I'm going to be a, a doctor. So I was even in my master's in uh, community health and prevention research at School of Medicine. What I ended like making me more competitive to go to med school. And when I got into grad school, I was like, "Whoa, this is not for me. I don't <laughs> want to be a doctor," which is probably one of the best decisions of my life because it just like gave like eight years of my life <laughs> of no longer being school and training. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I still learned like stats and R um, and that's the game assessed. And so like the clear transition with my skill set from, from grad school was science. And um, I was in Silicon Valley. So it was just being around tech as well. And so I just jumped all into it and became super passionate about it. So um, data science only kind of part of my life for like four years. Um, now that I say that loud, that seems like actually a little bit of a long time, but, uh, you know, I was much longer thinking I was going to be doing some healthcare medicine thing, um, for a very long time. So a lot of my friends are in med school and residency now, um, and I'm the, I'm the lone wolf. Um, I'm not necessarily the lone wolf. All my friends I am, but in the, in here, I'm just all a data community. So, but, uh, I'm the different run among, among my friends, um, doing so this data stuff. This, I know it might be getting a little personal, so you don't have to answer, but was there something, I know there's a lot of people call who are trying to get into it. Was there anything like, I know it's always comes to the parents, but you told your parents, I don't want to be a doctor and I'm going to be a data scientist. Like, was there any conversation there? Uh, actually, you know, uh, my, my parents were pretty, uh, pretty chill on like my career path was. If anything, I think they were happier. Um, and the reason being is like, they saw how much I was grinding myself to kind of become a doctor. 
like the level of commitment I was making in an unhealthy way. So they're more so relieved. You're like, oh my God, thank, thank you. You're leaving this. Like you're kind of running yourself into a wall. So they're actually happy that I left that, that path. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. And I think a lot of people could, could resonate with that. You can, did you always think you were going to be a YouTuber? <laughs> no, yeah. It's funny you say that, that uh, Mark went first is both my parents are doctors was, and both, uh, both my grandfathers were doctors and both my great grandfathers were doctors. So there was a little bit of pressure and I'm an only child for some perspective. So there was a little bit of pressure, a little bit of uh, expectation that I would go into the field of medicine by my parents. And uh, I obviously did not go that route. I had no interest in going that route, but uh, it's refreshing to hear that other people's parents were not as uh, or, or like excited about the prospect of, of you not going into medicine. Actually, it, it did turn out well. My folks are very happy with what I do now, but there were some interesting conversations. And until I was like in my like late 20s, my dad's like, it's not too late to go back to dental school. You could always just like make that pivot if you really want to. And then when I started like really enjoying my work and making some decent money, they're like, oh, like, oh, what you do is really cool. What are you talking about? We never said that. Um, I always thought, I was going to be a professional athlete. That's all I wanted to do as a kid. I wanted to play oh, professional yeah. baseball. Um, and after I got injured, I wanted to play professional golf and I tried, I went down and, and I tried to play professional golf for about six months. And that was after I did start learning some uh, economics and, and some of the more quantitative disciplines quickly realized that that pursuit of, of that lifestyle and that experience was not viable from a, a pure math perspective. You know, I, definitely, I just was not good enough, uh, but it was, it was a good experience to help me realize that I still loved sport and I loved combining data with sports. And that's what eventually led me into what I do now working in sports analytics is I wanted to still be involved. I saw that I had a fairly unique combination of skills to create value in this space. And I just kept pulling on that thread and asking questions that I wanted to know about sports, mainly for my own failures. So, you know, I wanted to know why I wasn't performing well enough, why I was not able to compete at the highest level. And data was the, was the way that you go about answering those questions and you go about understanding that playing field. So I, I was way off. I, in high school, if you asked me if I would ever write a line of code in my life. I'd have been like, you have got to be joking me, <laughs> but, but I, it ended up here in some weird, uh, in some weird obtuse way. And I, I couldn't be happier. Nice, man. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I know a lot of us didn't know. I, I mean, I know grew up, I thought I was going to be president, but then I moved to America and I realized that I'm never going to be eligible. So the only way I would have to go back to Macedonia, <laughs> um, but I didn't even know analytics was, I came from like Macedonia and my professor told like, Oh, there's something called analytics. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, but I figured I'll, I'll try it. And he, he gave me the Titanic data set and I told this story before once on the office hours. And it told me that I was like going to die on the neck. I was like, holy crap, this thing is cool. and knows so, so much. <laughs> and then, you know, you just give it a chance and you, you take a path and you see, you see where it takes us sometimes. Um, but Kevin, you also say you were a teacher, developer, and project manager. Do you want to know a little bit about that? Sure. So I, my undergraduate degree was in industrial engineering. I was a teacher. 
and I taught teach um, science and uh, industrial arts and uh, computers, actually. Um, then I got started in AutoCAD and teaching AutoCAD. And then I got a job doing AutoCAD. And then my boss knew I knew how to develop, but he knew how to talk. I know how to talk plain English to people. So he pulled me out of being a developer and being a BA and going to get requirements and talking to the engineering techs and, and finding out because what he heard me do was I'd talk to engineering tech and then I'd go to the two developers and I'd pull up the code and go to the particular line and said, you need to change that. And so, so he knew I knew how to get into it. Anyway, so then I've been a project manager for 25 years. And then I started reading about data science and data and data, 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 everything coming across my email subscriptions, just started talking about data. So I've been having fun. I've been playing in Python. Um, I took the Google Analytics course. I didn't do the uh, capstone project. I probably sit down and do it so I could finish that pro that course up. But yeah, Albert really drills people who do, who do the course, but they don't they don't do their capstone. So if he's watching this video, I think uh, he's going to be on your case afterwards. Uh, yeah, it's just you know it's just. You know, it's like they go through the whole course, right? You're doing this little data, these little data sets. It's like that's easy, that's good. And then you get this capstone project, and you have this <laughs> data set. It's like, all right, a little overwhelming at first, but I don't know. I might go back and do it. But um, so I've just been, you know, doing that and um, doing the LinkedIn learning, doing all Python courses and SQL classes, and uh, you took so linear algebra. Oh. So do you think that course should have been like challenged you more from the beginning? Uh, I know everybody, including Albert, would like some feedback. No, I mean, I think, you know, it's been good to, to learn. I mean, you know, I was a SQL DBA for eight years. And so it kind of brought back to data where I used to be. And um, so it's, it's just been interesting, but I never really planned on being in data science. I just started reading it and I kind of said, you know, if I want to be ready for my future, I think I better start messing with data. So, I like that. No, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we have a so Ken. I think this is a little bit related to what you do with your sixty-six days of data. Um, what do you recommend to people? Like, you know, sixty-six days. It's building habit. Slowly, you know, you want to be committed. What do you recommend to people after that 66 day? I know I was trying to do something around no code. And then afterwards I finished like my, my thing, like uh, it was like a hundred days of, well, I actually ended up going to 30, but then afterwards I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do anymore. What do you tell people who listen to you like that? Or like Kevin, who's like, okay, where do I go now? So I, I honestly believe that 66 days is just the start. I mean, that's the, the whole point is uh, according to James Corner's book, Atomic Habits, 66 days is the average amount of time that it takes for someone to ingrain a new habit. And so you could continue, a lot of people continue beyond the 66 days. There are people who are almost at a full year now. Um, but I, I think that that's the whole idea is that what you're creating is this habit of daily learning. You don't necessarily have to continue to document it if you don't want to, but it, it this is to kickstart you to kind of, again, pull, keep pulling on that thread and go down this, this path of data science, because at least for my it has been just a constant learning journey. It's not something that I feel like I can turn off for more than a couple of days at a time. And so I, I use that as just a way to reinvigorate myself every couple of months. It's like, let's, let's re-ingrain this habit, even if I'm doing this well and continuously. Uh, I, I try to do the 66 days about 
um, three times a year. And, and for me, that's that's just a way to, to keep that refresher, to, to have other people continue to hold me accountable and to continue to build systems where people can ask questions and and I can ask questions and get feedback and these types of things. So um, again, I would look at that as the start of the journey. And this is you know doing the certificate of these things. These are arming you with the tools to do the next thing that you want to do and build the next really cool thing and and get started with that project that that we've all been putting off. Uh, I, I think it's just you know it, it's just fun. It, it, it's like there's this journey has no destination. The more we frame it like uh, like this kind of wandering, progressive, and exciting path, the, the better for for all of us. Yeah, man, uh, it's uh, great content. And Mark's sixty six days of code has the best on LinkedIn. So. Not a competition, but it, it is some some great stuff. Um, so, just as you guys know, uh, if you have anybody has any questions, feel free to drop it in chat, and we'll ask. This is what this is about. Um, I know Mark usually has some question that's lurking his mind. He said he can't wait to talk to all of you guys. I'm sure he asked something, but uh, what about you, Joe? I know you not only went to become a data scientist, but you're actually a recovering scientist. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you ended up as a recovering data science? And did you think that's what you were going to, what you're doing now? Um, I mean, at some point or another, I'd always worked in data. I mean, since a long time ago. So I guess it was the stuff I, I had been doing, I guess you'd now call data science. Back then, there wasn't really a term for it. I guess it would be like predictive analytics or um, statistics. Uh, I mean, that was just before I think you had um, the computational power that you have now to do like machine learning in like a real capacity. I'd always had an interest in it, but computers back then uh, get very far on them. So <laughs> I'd say, well, you know, around uh, say GPUs were becoming more accessible. It's around like the early 2010s, late 2000s. Um, uh, I, I kind of saw that there was um, maybe a possibility that, that machine learning finally done in like a real form. So, you know, dove, uh, you know, into that interest. And I think, uh, didn't look back until I started at, an, uh, auto ML just back in 2012. It's, you know, really early attempts at, uh, I think automated learning, uh, it was, uh, it was a lot harder than it is now for sure. But what I realized is that, you know, I started noticing, well, okay. So like machine learning, I, I think it's. It's cool, but to do it in like a production setting, especially in, in an AutoML setting where you're trying to repeatedly build it, could take a data set and produce answers. Like the, the hardest parts of the engineering, actually. Like the, I, I felt like the algorithms part was like relatively simple by comparison, because that's just math at the end of the day. And if you have a good understanding of math and can figure that out, I think that that was actually the easy of everything. And the engineering, feature engineering in particular for you know these types of data sets is insane. So to automate that process, it felt like it was way, way, way harder than what we were doing. Uh, um, you know, from endpoints so that got me interested in just how, how do you build systems? Um, um, and, you know, over the years, kept seeing this repeatedly over and over where, you know, especially around the pens, I started noticing what companies were hiring data scientists on mass. Like it was, um, data science was not cool. Data wasn't always cool. Data was actually like this like job that you'd get, weren't like cool, get an MBA yeah. or something. Um, you know, so like you were kind of stuck in like the back office doing data work. It was not a cool profession. Um, now it's like way cool. Sexiest so, job of the 21st century. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll get to that part right now. So, um, 
So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a sexy job. You see a lot of people getting into it. And then all of a sudden, what we kept seeing over and over, and we still see this, like data science teams get hired and then they can't do anything, right? Like, I don't have any data. I don't have any, I don't have any systems. Uh, and so inevitably, these teams either have to do the data engineering work themselves or they have to have data engineering help them out. And so I realized data engineering, regardless, was sort of a prerequisite um, to getting data for analytics, data science. And now I could make an argument that even a you know, proper ML is also a prerequisite, depending on the type of maturity of your company. So, so the recovering data scientist bit is more just, I think, I just like direct experiences as well as, um, you know, those are my peers who come up pretty early in the, like I said, this, we're doing it before data science actually returned. So that's awesome, man. So, yeah. I didn't think I'd be doing what I'm doing specifically at the engine part, but you know, it, if you're able to predict your career from 20 years to today, I don't think you're trying hard enough either. <laughs> I like that one. I like that one. That's the lesson of the day. So let's see. Thank you everybody for sharing that. We have some questions here. Mark has a question. Russell wants to talk about NFTs again. And then Eric has a question as well. So Mark, I know I messaged first, but do you want to start with NFTs or do you want to go with your question? You said you also want to talk about NFTs. So, uh, I'll go with my question first because it ties okay. to Joe's response, I think, pretty well. Um, right, essentially, uh, you know, I'm in startups and something that's been really top of mind is, you know, when you're a startup in this product market fit and hyper growth, you're constantly putting out new features to see what kind of sticks and it's informed features, but it's kind of like you're still figuring things out and trying to collect data. At the same time, you're generating a lot of data and, you know, you have to have a find a way to process that and actually drive value. And if you're like an ML-based company, you know, there's like this dance between product features and infrastructure. And so as you grow in your data maturity, like when's the right time to start investing in kind of more complicated, not complicated, but more um, in, your, in your data maturity and structure? Um, you know, and I think it's always going to be like a long thing and it has to be incremental, but it's this huge challenge to convince a company and be like, Hey, let's go work on infrastructure when, you know, they use those resources to build like 10 more features. That's a lot. Three more features. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess like, how do you balance that? Joel, do you want to take a step about that? I think it, it's a matter of the value of data as well. You know, can I mean, you talk about features and investing in features, but it, it's a they're uh, investing in a data scientist, um, make a pretty strong argument that the deliverables that a data scientist creates are, are features as well, right? They may not be publicly facing features, but I hope they'd have as much value. So, um, so it's a question. I mean, do you, do you, I mean, I, my, my simple question is, do you want this to fail? So, you know, and if you do, then I guess, uh, you know, don't invest in my growth. Is what I'm trying to, that's one way to do it. And I'll, you know, fail and work somewhere else where I can be supported. So, I mean, it sucks that it happens a ton, right? I mean, you know, I talk, I, I talk with people a lot where it's, um, you know, like one, one instance is uh, you see data pipelines that are kind of broken, but you just want to invest in fixing them, but then the data is all messed up because of the broken data pipeline. You're like, what? And they're still expecting answers out of the uh, data scientists. And you're like, well, what do you, what do you want? This is, obviously can't work. Right. So quickly clarify, um, I guess in my case, like they're both highly valued and it's more of like, which one do we focus on this quarter? Like, how do you know, like right now is a good time to focus? And like, we can't focus on both well, that makes sense. So you're, you're kind of like the limitation is you can either focus on building features or building infrastructure. You know, how do you balance that dance? Maybe, maybe if it's kind of the off season, that's been the time tech that you have to do the, uh, 
you have to swap each each quarter. I don't know one way to do it, but it's not a good answer because I, I don't think that is a good approach. So that's the conclusion I came to too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just calling it like it is. I mean, I, I see a, a terrible, um answer given what you described. So it's not. I mean, you, you can't. Like, um, the old saying, you know, um, you, know, you get like a baby in a month, right? It, it, it's not how it happens. So, and this is sort of one of those things where I feel like things might be um, not thought through. So that's my take. I like Ken's answer, Mark, uh, in the comments, you'll be saw for a nominal fee. So, um, yeah. but. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Ken. One call, that's all. Ternary uh, data. Um, <laughs> thanks, Ken. <laughs> Now, but unfortunately, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, flippant in my answer either. I mean, I'm trying to give you the best answer I can, but it's just, I've seen this all too often where I think that, that there, are the, there are these trade-offs, right? And you're trying to make the best trade-offs you can. And it's kind of like either I make this or the other one. But in this case, I would have to say, well, um, the answer kind of has to be both. You're going to have to make some some head in both directions or you're not going to. And then, you know, what, what are you going to do for the next quarter? Are you going to just sit there like, like doing hacker rank or something? I mean, it's be bored. So if it matters that much, then it's, then, you know, the effort has to be put into it. Go hire a turnaround data. Help you out. Mikiko, do you want to? If Mikiko, do you want to chime in on this? Yeah, I think, so if, I think for one thing, that struggle is unique, like data science ML companies, right? Like any, like any traditional engineering or technical product company will have this question of, um, like we'll explore result. do you like continuing doing what you do better or investing down doubling down that area or do you or continue to just go wide and i feel like the only advice i've ever heard is like don't just do one like you have to do some combination of both um i know in like designing data intensive app um and joe like please let me know if i am misquoting it i think at some place martin i think he says if you really have to put a hard number, you know, design for if you're thinking like, uh, like not three X growth, but like three magnitudes of order of growth when it comes to designing like infrastructure that is like scalable and resilient. But I think that's like a very specific sort of application or kind of context that he's giving that to. But I think like a lot of times it's not just this black and white. So for example, if you're testing out a feature, um, you have to go like, you know, I was gonna say balls. So we gotta find more like P versions of these terms. Uh, but you don't have to go, you know, all the way down to like building a fully featured model, right? What you can do is you could do something. For example, uh, we were actually talking about this in like our in our article reading group. You do like a painted door test, for example, right? Where it's like you sort of give the options, and then you have some kind of like in this case you would have some kind of dummy rule. Like, so for example, if you're trying to cement users as part of feature. Uh, you know, you could say like if people are above or below like certain sort of bins or you can pile them or whatever instead of like going out and just building like a model. So there are ways that you can kind of like de-risk um, investment into creating new features. And similarly, there are ways that you can de-risk creating infrastructure. Um, a big part is like hiring people like Ternary Data uh, <laughs> to let you know what you shouldn't. Um, and I think that's kind of more like the worst part is not, a lot of times there are kind of like several decent options but sometimes there is like some options that are like a really bad idea. So if you're, for example, like a person startup and you're only starting with 10 customers, it's probably a really bad idea to immediately go to like enterprise, like Google level style sort of tooling and infrastructure. 
that's probably a really bad idea to go off the bat. And, you know, my start, maybe we kind of maybe tried doing some sort of almost close to that, unfortunately. But if you try to go for something in between, you're probably going to be better off, right? So I think a huge part of it is, first off, like understanding that there is never going to be this like black and white. It's going to be this like space of options that you'll have to kind of figure out. I think the second part is understanding like, you know, what are we kind of de-risk both? One way to de-risk it is expert advice. Another way to de-risk it is for anything where you're thinking like, okay, I have to build a fully featured model. Just first testing out with like a dummy solution or even like manually labeling stuff. Um, seeing if people even like will take that up. And then the third part is just having very kind of a clear understanding of what success looks like all the time, right? In analytics where, you know, you do a dashboard report and you show it to this part. What does this tell me? And like, oh, this is really, is it really? Because like, it's like growth is like going up like 5%. In some industries, that's the thing. In other industries, that's terrible. So it's all about contextualizing what does like success in those KPIs look like. And it's very similar for when you're thinking about these like infrastructure um, sort of questions and exploring exploit. Oh, this uh, both both answers are, are really helpful. Just reflecting on my past year uh, at a startup and like seeing all the growth we've had and all the new stuff. And like because you have so much new stuff, I'm like, wait, <laughs> it's all this new stuff when you do. So um, you know, trying to trying to like formulate like what I want to do in this company, like provide potential solutions, like trying to make not necessarily make the argument, but like place it within the context of the company. Um, just my just like, reaching the limit of my experience where I'm just like huh, I don't know enough about this. <laughs> I haven't been exposed enough about this to actually like have a fruitful conversation. So this is really helpful. Well, I, I want another piece to add too. If you're at a startup, I mean, I, I think there's nothing like just being the person who just kind of goes and does stuff and then tells you that he just did it. So I mean, there's a lot of value to that, honestly, in a startup. I don't think you could do that at a big company, but at a startup um, where you are, you are under the pressure of resource constraint and, and runway in particular and time, I would, you know, if somebody on my team did that and it was cool, and it added value and it didn't break in production, like, sure, that's cool. Prototype it out and show what you've done first before you put it in production, maybe. Um, but I would say that just because it's not an initiative doesn't mean you shouldn't take the initiative and, and uh, show people what you did. Because it's one of those things where I, I noticed with data, especially, it's like showing is better than just telling. So if you show something that you've done and just really prove it out, I mean, that shows a couple of things. One, you got initiative, so that means you're like, cool, um, A play, all that stuff. The other thing is you have a demo that you can show engineers who otherwise would just be like time to think about this because like who gives it? I have other things to think about, like my code base or you know, um, my commute, like all the other stuff that's on people's minds. Not very few people are gonna care about your problems as much as you are. You really got to take the initiative and just like show them what what you want to happen. And thankfully, like right, making a prototype it shouldn't be that hard. Even if it's just like an envision, honestly, like this is the work I'm envisioning and just showing people. Like, that's cool. So, you know, I've had people do that to me and my teams where they, I was like, I don't have time to think about this. Like, but they just did it anyway and showed me. And I thought that was pretty dang cool, actually. Do that. So that might be the other approach. And if they're actually at a startup, I think that's kind of what you got to do. So, you know, if they like it, great. If they don't, then I don't know. Good. So. Uh, 100%. Now, I've had, I've finished a major projects. So I've had a lull and a lot of time to and so my thinking brought me here. So this is really helpful. Good. So uh, drop in the address and Joe will send you a bill after this call. Um, <laughs> but if that helps, I think also there was a good conversation going on in the chat. You might be able to check out some resources there around it. Um, if 
Anybody else wants to chime in? If not, we go to Eric's question because I think it's related to, to that. Okay, Eric, do you wanna ask the, your question? Awesome, this is my first time here. It's, <laughs> it's so cool to have this audience to, to pose this to. Basically, um, I don't know if you guys like follow Tyler Folkman, but like I work under the guy who works under Tyler Folkman and he's awesome. Like his approach to data, it's all about like, you know, researching features, failing fast, like getting quick feedback, um, you know, production early and stuff like that. So always, um, like I've really been on the engineering side, most basically all of my experience, like, like I did, um, I did like some deep learning school, you know, like, um, I have like a personal project that I want to launch soon, but mostly like, mostly it's been like the ML opsy type stuff, like, you know, make sure models don't get scale, stale, retrain them, stuff like that. And so I just have found that like in my career so far, some of the more exciting, so, you know, part of the data science that really just like got me really excited. Like I heard Ben Taylor came and spoke in my research lab when I was in school. And so he just like caught my imagination with, he gives the same presentation every time, but, um, but yeah, that was what triggered me into like going and doing math and stuff and getting into the space. So, um, so yeah, one thing that was exciting to me was kind of like the inventive nature of like research, you know, like you have all these unknown problems. Maybe you can use data science to come up with these cool solutions to them. Um, and so, so far on the engineering side, like my sort of slice of the ML life cycle, ideas come pretty much pre-vetted, like maybe not, maybe, maybe the infrastructure itself is a little experimental, but like, um, but I don't feel like I'm necessarily part of like the inventive part of that process. And so actually I think I'm about to dial back my full-time job. Like, like I'm, this is like a risk I'm thinking of taking, cause I just don't have exposure to the research side. So I'm thinking about like cutting back my full-time job and taking a new like part-time job as a researcher, like somewhere else. It's because I feel like I'm just, I feel like I haven't had the chance to see on the research side of data science. So I just, I just wondered what, can you guys like speak to that? Like, what's it like, you know, on the research side versus engineering? Like, um, what are the different stresses you have? Or like, what are the different parts that are fun? Does, does that make sense? Like, Sure. Yeah. So you're saying uh, you want to learn more about like the research out of engineering. Um, mm -hmm. We'll, Mikiko has her hand raised and then uh, we'll do whoever else. Tom can chime in, but let's, let's start it off and see where we go. Yeah, mine is going to be pretty quick because honestly, I've never really sort of been on the research. Um, so two things. So there are like data scientists roles where they don't quite ish research. Like they do like analytics and experimentation, all that. Uh, and then there's like the research, research research folks. And there's actually a few on the call. Um, but one thing I would say is you don't need to quit your job to go get research experience. Uh, the reason I know this is because um, they had, like they had a couple of COVID and prior to COVID, like data hackathons or whatever that were sort of open public. And there is a couple of them where, for example, when we were looking at like despair, like the impact of, um, redlining policies on COVID disparities. And this was back when I was at Teladoc and we were very, very seriously interested in the social determinants of health. Um, myself and two others, we acted as sort of like the data scientist engineers and we were partnered with a few academics uh, from who are teachers or professors at a university. And the outcome of that was, uh, was a paper that could be submitted to conferences. So, that's just say like once in like you don't you probably don't need to quit your job to get kind of that sort of research uh, experience hands on uh, where you know if it's just involved with like data and expectation and all that um, 
there are definitely opportunities out there. So, but that's once again speaking as someone who liaison with academics or researchers to provide engineering and all that insight. Nice. I love that insight. I mean, just to clarify, like I wasn't thinking about quitting my dial, my current hours back, but yeah, like I, I see the distinction between like academic research and maybe like more product focused research is probably like this more thinking of. Okay. Um, Ken, you have your hand raised as well. I was going to first ask for the clarification that you just gave. I think that was my friend. I mean, if you're looking into the academic research within like machine or within these domains, that's a completely different animal where you're focused on optimizing or creating algorithms rather than applying data science to a specific domain. Um, I, I personally would try and look within <clears throat> your current organization to see if you can sit in in some of the meetings and, and get exposure to what's upstream of what you're doing. To me, that's like a really uh, logical step career development wise for you as well where you can say like within the company that I'm at, um, one, like what is the work impacting? Like, where does this go? How does this work? It, it'll probably help you do your job better, but it'll also, you know, if you did want to move up that pipeline to a different role in that, in the company, you'd know exactly what to expect. Uh, I also wanted to second, uh, what Mikiko said about there are plenty of opportunities to do research, to, to work on papers, to, to do very legitimate things within the space already. I mean, I've I've talked to fairly recently a, quite a few like academics that are that are not doing uh, machine learning. They're either in biology and some of these other things. And if you did want to go more on the academic side, they're looking for people to program or to to like actually do data analysis on the research that they're doing because that's not within their core competency core competency skill set. So like you can create good like value add. You can help people. Um, at scale at nonprofits or, or that, that don't have as much funding, or you can also do some contract work or Kaggle or some of these other places where they have public data that you're doing very legitimate things in terms of research there. So um, obviously up to you, if you're not going to quit your job and you do want to pick up something else, that's definitely an option. There are also plenty of options within your specific company within the sources, which might be easier to, to get into rather than applying places and figuring out how to pick that up. Um, just, I think that's all I got. Just real briefly, Ken, I'm going to believe that you didn't remember that I owned the statement Nikiko said. So be cautious in the future. I'd be trademarked it yet. Mine, mine's pending. Yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah, Tom. Ken, I couldn't mute him on time. I can you, but we'll take you to court. <laughs> I just got off of like a three hour call with my lawyer. So uh, I'll, I'll probably settle. I don't want to pay her any more money. <laughs> and could, could y'all start half? That's someone's trying to trademark what Mikiko said. I don't think he says it enough. Yeah, but I think Mikiko needs some royalties on this deal. Otherwise, I would not uh, do it. So um, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Tom, besides anything else to add? Um, Eric. Awesome question. And uh, I did put an answer for you in the comments. The best way to research is to search. Now, I'm going to give you some from reinforced learning. Reinforced learning, an agent in reinforced learning, starts policy. That initial policy is crap. Your initial break into research plan might be crappy, but try it, 
learn from it, refine it, try it some more, learn from it, refine it. Don't take no for answer. Uh, let's say you come up with something great, but you can't get any journal article to it because you don't have those magic three letters behind your name, which is bullshit, by the way. Well, find a PhD to partner with and just say, can you let me be primary second author? You can even review sure it sounds journal article-y enough, but don't just go for it. And uh, then the importance to leave a trail of any kind of document, form a blog post or blog with blog about your journey, uh, or what you're doing and what you're learning and show strong proof for it in everything that you post. I mean, just be a social group about all this, grow your with it over time and uh, you'll be able to break into research. Now, it may not be as easy as if you have PhD, but again, you may have to form some alliances to really get the attention you want. But breaking into that realm and truly making a difference at the edge of the office, that is challenging. But there's so many areas that are needed so many. I mean, and it's like Chris look up on YouTube five minute entrepreneurs. I, I actually think that might be the best advice you get in this space, but it's search that really makes a difference, you will get some traction. And then I would also resist the temptation be a data science researcher, a data science researcher title. Just do it. Do it in your spare time. And if you're doing significant enough stuff, you probably eventually get a job doing it. That's my two cents. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think I wasn't really about like breaking into it, but that's for sure. But I, I think your community is super tight. And so like you're saying, like if you do big projects, like usually, usually there's someone with an opening on some team at some point that'll help you at least get in, in the production space. Like you're smiling. I can't tell if you agree or not, but like, that's what that's how it seems to me. It's more like, do I even want to do it? Does that make sense? Like, because it seemed to me that like always the burden my analyst friends have had to carry is like proving that they're worth paying. If that makes sense, like like as an engineer, I can always be repurposed if AI in the company proves not to be valuable for some reason. Like, so I just I just know like in all the hotness of like maybe getting to experiment with new ideas, you know, you have like that that weight over you of like, yeah, but like, are we gonna have some sort of ROI later? But yeah, I really appreciate what you guys have said. It's been cool. Like one, one last thing, Eric. When I started learning about transformers initially, I thought that it was the end of democratized data science research <laughs> until Dennis's book came out, Dennis Rothman's book on transformers. And there was a point at which he pointed out, hey, these guys with a transformer model about, I, I, I think, one ten thousandth the size of GPT-3, trained on regular hardware with a good GPU, good processor, and read time on a specific task, spanked GPT-3's butt on performance. Now, it had to be specifically trained and everything. But after I read that, I realized human ingenuity always wins in the research space. And now there are transformers being trained by new techniques by Linformers. I can't even remember all the names, Eric, but there's there's always some more better, clever way to do this stuff. You just gotta keep researching that space. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's some good stuff right there for you, Eric. I, if you can do it at your company, I mean, sometimes you have downtime. Uh, I know I was at my, when I was starting out, I was doing a lot of business intelligence and reporting and I wanted to do like machine learning stuff and try new ideas. And I said to my manager, you know, well, when I have some time, if you don't mind, I, I think there's an opportunity with this data. I want to try it out, see see where it goes, you know. Um, so then on like on Fridays, he they allowed me. And uh, every Friday, it would be like, uh, I will just have time to to work on machine learning, see where it goes. And I got to slowly build my my experience that way. So that kind of stuff is there always. Uh, I know uh, also doing things after work uh, here and there, scrape some data, try to find some insights. I forgot who mentioned that, but posting this on LinkedIn, people really notice it and it gets conversations going and it kind of does a validation. And then I think the third thing, if you're doing, trying to do like actual research, like the what professors do, if you have contact with some professors, talk to them because I thought I wanted to kind of do some of that. And I got one of my professors, I was like, hey, I want to help you out. And he gave me all the data and he's like, okay, this will do. And then it starts getting peer reviewed and you have to reiterate. And I realized real quickly, I'm like, this on LinkedIn, I don't need it in some academic journal, right? It wasn't really for me. And for some people it might be, but I quickly found out that it wasn't for me. So try to find opportunities in your current situation that, that you can do some of this stuff. Um, and, and see where it, it goes. But uh, Mark has something that he wants to add. Um, I just wanted to kind of add to, to Tom's point about how you can find and what you're saying, a professor. Um, currently, I'm, I'm working on a project with my mentees to um, classify risk, newborn mortality within 28 days. And it's like this really novel data set that I found through a research paper that only had like a few views and like, this is gold. And depending on how it turns out, I'm just going to go to my old professors and pitch it to them and be like, hey, I did this analysis already. Here are the results. If you want to do the write-up, you can be first author. I don't care. <laughs> and, and you can handle the publishing and stuff like that. And like, we can just talk about the analysis. And there's different guidelines, like what, what accounts for you to be a full author for, for publishing researchers. Um, so you can check that out. But like, that's another thing you do. If you find a novel data set, do a cool analysis, just to, to professors to collaborate with them. Sweet. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I think I'll let you I'll let you know what I'm doing. I think we're going to try it on for like a year. So whether it's internally or somewhere else, but something I've been thinking about, it's been weighing on my mind. So it's just it's awesome to hear you guys have to say. So thanks, guys. Hey, do some project, post it on your GitHub, write up an article about it. Plus, we'll be happy to peer review it for you. And then you'll <laughs> see if you if you really like doing that. I will literally tag all of you. Here it comes. That's awesome. All right. Um, Mark, I don't know if your hands raised from before or you just re-raised it. Uh, but um, you, I, it stayed up. I don't know why it didn't go down. Okay. Um, so thank you, everyone. Uh, hopefully this was helpful for, for Eric. Uh, we have another question, but also I know Russell had a question from before. So Russell, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, thanks, Antonio. Um, so this is uh, touching back to last week. We got deep into NS. Um, but one of the points I made last week was a conversation we'd had with uh, Mark previously uh, about using NFTs to um, verify the validity of data to authenticate it, that it could then be used for other purposes without any question about its authenticity. 
and in the last week, there's been additional um, news breaking about um, NFTs being used in the commercial market, um, which is, has made me think about some conversation we had with Ken a little while back for the, the Z Run, uh, uh, Ken. And um, I, I think I, I posted last week, there's been a, a school child in the UK who has created a lot of um, small whale images that have sold for hundreds of thousands Um uh, cumulatively um, for this uh, school age um, child, I think maybe 12, 13, something like that. Quite, uh, quite interesting. Uh, and what I've seen in the news recently has been the uh, the bored ape. Has anybody seen this? Uh, there's been all of these um, cartoon images of apes that have been selling for quite some yep. uh, large fees. I think Stephen Curry bought one, which made kind of headlines for you know tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and there's a, a lot of variants for these. I guess it's almost similar to a trading card game where you, you've got all of these variants of a single image with weight changes in, uh, and some are more rare than others. So people chase those and those sell for higher prices. So that kind of a, a dynamic for NFT seems to be really picking up pace. So I'm just interested in the, in the opinions of uh, others on the call here, but, but definitely um, both Mark and Ken in the first instance. Do you interested more about what they think about this new trend or, or like general or to see how NFT, how the use of NFT has been changing just over the last two months where it seems to be being um, uh, rather than the artworks that we saw being sold some six months ago, where there was the, the huge $63 million artwork, which was a, a um, like a cumulative piece of thousands of different artworks you had to zoom in, etc. These are, single pieces that say similar to a trading card game. This seems to be really picking up pace. And I, I, I expect that there's going to be more of these types of things hit the market soon. But the, the thing that you were looking with, Ken, that seems to be a little different. You know, that's, you know, it's a, it's an alternative virtual horse racing game, essentially, rather than just bothering to collect. That's something that there will be interactions with. So where do you see the immediate future of NFTs kind of, Picking up more pace on the kind of the collectibles type of market, or more on the on the Z run type of market. Well, you know, I I was very skeptical about NFTs from the collective. I that uh, you know why, why do people have collectibles? It's a store of value. It's unique in a certain sense. And if we're looking at a global market of collectible NFTs, like they're digital goods, you can create or generate millions of things that are similar or, or like what makes them, uh, you know, unique in a certain circumstance. And I think once you start creating individual markets around each one, that's where the value really comes from. Historically, where I saw the most value in NFTs is for content licensing. So one of the biggest problems with content creation on YouTube, on Twitch, or any of these things is there's copyright uh, issues with music you're listening to, things you show on screen, whatever that might be. And NFTs allow you to label those things, show that you have ownership over them so you can use them. And in a perfect world, you could have a marketplace of this where those things would be relatively affordable. Because right now, if I go and I want to buy a picture from Shutterstock, it's like $75 or something. It's ridiculous, right? So if you're outsourcing this to individual people, I think that that's an incredible place for this to have real world utility and, and usefulness. I think that what, what I expect to see is with the collectibles, it, the market just inundated with new NFTs that anyone and their mother could create, right? They're just going to be like 
turned it home and, and saturated. And the original pieces that are out there are going to continue to carry value. But what happens when you know everyone is seeing seeing the value created by these or how much money people are making? And it's just like crypto, like there's uh, millions of altcoins now, right? And what differentiates them? Some some have utility, some have practice. And that's where I think the NFT market is going to find itself. And that, that's why I really like Zed Run. In my mind, that was the first place where NFTs had utility outside of saying, hey, I just own this. I can also you know, raise the source. I can breed the source to create new F- NFTs. There's a system, an ecosystem around it that continues to drive its value in unique and different ways. And there's some other NFTs now. I was looking at one where you know you, you buy an individual character and you can buy like weapons for them, and it's like a little RPG game, which I think is kind of cool. Um, not as well implemented as I think it could be, but the more that we create systems that um, that make the individual NFTs or goods useful in and of them outside of the collectability aspect the more these come in stream and the more applications we're inevitably going to. I, I actually hadn't heard of the, the data use case. And I love that. I think it's inherently practical. It makes sense. Um, there's a lot of data marketplaces out there uh, that don't do this that well. And to be able to keep track of where all this data is going, to be able to understand who has legitimate, use, not legitimate use of these things, uh, that could be the next evolution in my mind. I, it's embarrassing that I hadn't put those two together because I see the value and the utility in both of these things. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know exactly. I kind of went down some rabbit hole there, but I, I love that direction. The more we can make these things have practical uses and create ecosystems, the better. Yeah. I like the the V friends by Gary V. Uh, so if you has 10,000 V friends, right? They're all each unique. So if you, if you own them, uh, you get access to his conference, uh, V-Conference, uh, V-Com, I think he's called, for the next three years. So, what, which I think, I mean, he, could he just sell tickets? Probably to the conference, right? I think what the, the NFTs allows him to do is, but if I buy this three-year access, and next year I don't want to go to the conference, I can just transfer that to somebody else, right? Maybe I got my value out of it. Now somebody else gets to do that. And I mean, what works for him is he gets a royalty on every transaction, right? He can't do that if it was just a regular ticket on like Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster would make the money uh, every time the ticket sells. Uh, him as the creator wouldn't touch any any part of that. So I see some of those those uses. Um, I've been thinking about it. So there's this pizzeria actually that I go down the street and have any royalty. I'm like, I'm here every day. They don't give me anything. I wish they had like an NFT, right? They say if owner of like holder of this NFT gets 50% off on, on, on pizza, for example. And then I use that for as long as I live in this area. Maybe I buy it for like a thousand dollars or something and it has like a cool art. And then I use it for as long and then move out of this area. I don't want to just lose this thousand dollars. I can just pass it on to somebody else. And then you just sell the NFT and then the next person goes on. I do see a lot of those kind of smart contracts that could be used in the future. Uh, I think somebody asked, do we actually need a, a picture of a, of a puppy to go with it or like a, an ape? I, I don't know if you need the picture. I think it just adds on to the flavor and just makes it look uh, makes it look interesting. But I do definitely believe in the in the smart in the smart contract uh, of things. Uh, Mark, uh, do you have to add anything? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Ken, Ken said uh, it. I think the thing that really excited me wasn't the images or like the selectability, but it's just a new way of thinking of ownership. And that new way of thinking of ownership, for me, it meant there's new ways to create business models. And so what really struck me was like, what's the level of innovation of thinking of how to monetize this? That's going to happen. And so I think the, the original post, um, Russell, that you're referring to was, I was thinking of NFTs as a way to um, mitigate the impact of deep fakes. And so it's particularly for like government agencies. So say, for instance, I'm just making something up, like the president of the United States put out a press release, right? Um, and that's a video. People can easily change that with deep fakes to say whatever they want. Um, and so NFT could potentially be a way, say like there's this NFT attached to this exact video, the government owns this NFT. And I can say with like confidence, this is the actual true image or video. And it wasn't altered because it's validated by this NFT and ownership. In addition, NFT, say for instance, like some bureaucratic process where it goes from the, the White House to like the Library of Congress, they can now uh, pass that NFT to another department and it's tracked on the ledger. So there's like this transparency component as well. And so it's not necessarily like, oh yeah, I own these images, but it's more so thinking what does ownership in a digital world look like? Um, and the whole thing with, um, with like blockchain is like, uh, and this is me from just talking to Carlos and reading his book. So like he'd be the best person to, to talk to this, but essentially it's like you're removing this third trusted party um, and you're taking ownership of like the trust and processes around validating things, right? And so by doing that, that makes things really efficient because now you have to go through a middle person um, to make these transactions happen. Um, so that's what really excites me is that there's just a new opportunity for businesses. And I'm just really excited for what can innovate to, to, to drive kind of like, like you said, with the V friends from business models around um, ownership in a digital space. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the more, more exciting and, and easily is that, that, that ownership for content, as you say, to protect against uh, deep fakes, et cetera. Although I do like Antonio's um, uh, idea there for kind of, uh, you know, discount loyalty cards. That sounds like a great, great use case for it as well. But what we went on to talk about last week, later in the conversation, which kind of ties back to earlier in the call this week, was say you had a model that had a great um, training set. You could you could NFT that training set and make it available to other users to you know get two months up from from you know instead of start from zero percent, start from thirty percent. Um, you know it's not going to be exactly where they need to get, but it's going to be a better starting point. So you could NFT that and, and yield some kind of monetization from it, depending on what your uh, um, your requirements are. But all of those types of things, I think there's there's great prospects for the future of NFTs for proof of provenance and proof of authenticity, validation, etc. I think that's where they're going to be stronger. This whole um, collectibles market, I think, is going to be a bit of a, a flash in the pan, Uh as Ken was saying, you know, a great bit of digital artwork, someone can snip that from a screen, print it out, and, you know, no one's going to be any any the wiser unless it's really well broadcast that it's a, a big piece that someone well-known uh, has ownership to. And if someone on the other side of the globe copies it and puts it on their wall, you're not going to know. So very difficult to police the ownership of, a, of an electronic item like that, I think. I think it has a lot of potential. I mean, like Ken, what you have, Ken has like 150,000 subscribers on YouTube, but those people were like dying to have a one hour conversation with him. If I was Ken, create an NFT, whoever gets that NFT, you get like a 
private one hour call or like a advice session with with Ken uh, once every year or once every six months, right? Maybe that person who who does the the call does it for two years and year three, they're like, well, found my Ken's taught me so many things. Now I'm ready to take on the world. Uh, I can sell this NFT now and they sell it, you know, so then Ken gets a royalty. His value is increasing. By then he has 2 million followers. Now his NFTs worth like $100. Um, so I think something like that is, is bound to happen. The creator scene who are doing that. Um, and there could be a, definitely a growth. I do think one of the areas is though is making it more accessible to people. I know when I started, it was like, you need to have on Coinbase. Then I need a MetaMask account like a public wallet, but then I need to buy the NFT from OpenSea. And then there's like gas fees that you have to pay, you know? So it's like kind of like three programs who are, who you need to actually just buy the NFT. But I think from that perspective, once it becomes more accessible to people and anybody can just go buy them, um, then we'll see where it goes. But Ken FT, I like that. <laughs> So V, uh, he said, if you buy, he has a new book coming out, 12 and a half. He said, for every 12 books you buy, he'll drop you like an NFT as a surprise on November 16th when uh, the book comes out. So I missed out on V friends and I didn't want to regret it and miss out again. So I told my wife, I'm like, I'm buying some books. She's like, oh, how many books? I actually ended up buying 808 copies of the book on Amazon. And I'm going to get, I don't know what exactly is. I think it's nine NFTs from Gary Vee on November 16th or around there. So I'll, I'll be happy to share what that is. Uh, I was like an investment, but I've been, that's why I, I did a giveaway the other day on LinkedIn. Uh, I'd be happy to send you guys some books as well that are on this call once it comes out. Because I have 108 books and uh, it's, I don't think I need that many to read. But I didn't know too many, like the, the Board Apes projects are very expensive. So I was like, what the heck? I'm going to take a chance on this, see what happens. It's a learning experience. So I'd be happy to share my, my experience once I, I do receive this. Well, I am one of the projects I'm doing in October or November. I am going to be scraping. Uh, or, or are you just using the public eye of OpenSea and, and getting a lot of data on the marketplace there, mainly for Zedron, because I'm actually like, there's cool outcomes associated with that. But I, I'll be sharing that so everyone keep an eye open. You want some more like data insight into to what that space is all about. Awesome, guys. So you're going to start your 66 cans of data with the perfect As anybody else would like to add, I don't know. And so we will keep going. We'll keep it going all night. Russell is the only one doing it right with a drink in his hand. I should have grabbed something, but it's all right. We'll, I'll catch up afterwards. Um, let's see. We had a question from, I don't know if he's still, uh, from Mark. Mark, do you want to go ahead and ask your question? Sure. Thanks for uh, listening. <laughs> so I have this a project I'm starting. Uh, really just uh, trying to track uh, hand movement. Uh, like the camera angle is basically about the table. I'm just trying to track hand movement around the table uh, and around there, uh, like maybe touching a few 
different areas. And I just want to track uh, basically a bounding box, like true or false. There's a hand there, hand, hand's not there. Um, and some of the things that I've been trying was like, you know, uh, image differencing uh, and pretty much the contours that are created from that. Like I'm not really getting much, especially that's because of the frame that I have. Um, and so I'm also considering like low power, uh, power low uh, computer power usage because um, uh, uh, neural networks and whatnot, well, I was just steer away, trying to do like really simplified. Um, but I don't know if that's the best way I'm thinking because based on my research and reading that I've gone over with like Stack Overflow and other sources, it seems like a combination between like that, uh, like with OpenCV packages, APIs, whatnot, um, and probably some neural networks like MPIs, like body points um, is really probably a good avenue, but then I'm not trying to like go on something. I'm trying to basically gather uh, you know, or suggestions to basically tackle such a problem. Okay, do we have any expert who would like to chime in on this audience? Uh, anyone who's part of the question, you're saying how to get started and stuff? Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's basically, you know, recognizing a hand. Uh, uh, I've basically lost tracking like you know, a KFC in a sense uh, with like, you know, selecting a region of interest and then it tracks the hands for a few frames, but you know, because of a two frame per second type of frame rate, uh, it loses the hand and basically doesn't detect it again. So I basically have to reapply it. Okay. So are you using any tutorial? I know um, Adrian, I, I can't forget his uh, I forget his last name, but his uh, owns Pi. I think it's called Pi Image Search. Uh, are you familiar with that? I've heard of it. Okay. Yeah. So I don't have too much. I know he is huge in that field, and he will walk you step uh, step by step uh, in how to how to do that. And so I'll I'll be happy to drop the link in in the in the comments. But Tom. Uh, I see you have something uh, that might be helpful for Mark. It's just that I am by the most experienced Google searcher here. <laughs> skills, I knew what terms to use to get you some good stuff, basically. Those three videos will get you a good start, and then you'll know how to search for useful stuff better than me at that point after watching the three videos. I have a friend who used to do this stuff a lot. If you run into problems, Mark, reach out to me personally with a LinkedIn direct message, and then we can go from there. I can hook you up with some people that really know this stuff well. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for all those links and suggestions. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the best advice you can get. When you're in the data field, the number one skill you need to have is really is Google and knowing how to look stuff up on Stack Overflow or on YouTube, um, that skill. Yeah, like a lot of times they would ask me work. They're like, hey, Antonio, can you do this project? I'm like, give me a second. I will pull it. If it's on Google, I'm like, yes, I can do it. No problem. <laughs> For sure. If, if I can't find it on Google, then I'm like, uh, I think I think I could do it, but it's going to take a lot of time. And you see the way everything is set up. It's going to take two to four business weeks. So can we maybe we can work on something else. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, that's the that's the play. 
Um, the thing you need to do is, I believe it's season four, episode four of Silicon Valley. You need to watch the hot dog, not a hot dog. That's probably the training you'll get. That's a great show. Thank you for confirming, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> I started it. I need to finish it, but yeah, I can definitely relate a lot to it. <laughs> um, let me see. Um, unanswered. I don't want you guys going to sleep with your questions unanswered. Uh, uh, did anybody help you? Or do you want to ask your question? Hello. Yeah, I mean, like, he suggested me to work on Like, That's what I'm starting to, like, watching some videos and, like, really getting into it, like, how it's working, like, how Hadoop file system is working and how to use NoSQL. Like, I'm not familiar with the NoSQL database yet. Like, I'm, like, I know SQL and I have done work in using that, but MongoDB and NoSQL, like, the platform and, like, I'm just trying to figure out all that stuff since um, in this semester I have to do one big project, big data. So I, I'm I'm not sure like which um, since I've talked to the professor like his he like I don't have the system to train my model locally, and Unity don't have the resources to provide us, and I don't have that like good GPU on my like on my laptop. So I was thinking to like do like my work on the cloud server. But I'm not very sure, like, one can suggest, like, what cloud services, like, I can use for the, like, Google Collab is what other services I can use to train my models. Just one caution. I was going to recommend cloud, and I'm going to need help here, and it's too to left. But um, my big error when I start buying my own cloud time is data. I, I would do my best to minimize the time I was doing that. So getting at uh Gersimran, I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah. Good, good. Um play with a toy sample until you get it right. You can do that in Google Colab. Once you get that right and you're pretty confident you could scale the data and everything's going to go smoothly, then go rent your cloud time. But I always pucker the most when I have to rent data time. Mikiko, you have your hand raised. Yeah, what McKee about? Yeah, uh, just I guess I guess a quick question. So, what are the requirements of the like? Mm. Did he tell you what it needed to accomplish? Did he tell you? Sorry, not he. Did they? Did they yeah. tell you what you needed to do? Need to accomplish yeah. requirements were. Uh, not like specifically. He's like uh, either you can do a like uh, research where you can like have your own novelty in it, like something that is like worked before or you can work on the model again like use a new machine learning algorithm like use like just tap untap mark like the in the rest of, like use that so you or, can like, do okay or do any academic project like use big data and then use like Elasticsearch to scale that then use some bunch of technology like power bi to do analysis and stuff like that okay um and you know what any of these things are and I, the only reason i'm asking that is because i want to understand kind of like what's your prior experience with either engineering or data science and analytics yeah so i worked like i did my bachelor's in computer science and after that i worked as a research intern 
so working as a researcher and i worked on a machine like prediction of the soil moisture using machine learning algorithm like it was a we proposed an iot based device which was you take different factors into account and we were using it to like predict the soil moisture so that if like if rain is like about to come like after three to four days then we don't need like water the crop according like it was the base concept on it like we worked on it and after that like i'm just working on small project like prediction on some sales prices and i joined sgs uh, sgsu in spring 2021 and initially like for my first semester i was doing some probability stuff and like and in semester i have like actually started working on machine learning like last I was working on an hmm model to like write it in like from scratch to train like using the corpus data and like to write all the alpha pass beta pass and like building the algorithm from the scratch so that i get the insight like how it's working okay so what it sounds like is that for the project you could directions you could either develop a new model you yeah. could potentially productionize a model um mm -hmm. You could kind of keep in a specific area, or you could do something that's a little bit more integrated. So basically, your professor gave you no guidance. Okay, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. Um, so, and then in terms of your like, would you say you're stronger in engineering or modeling? Like you've had more experience with modeling. Yeah, like I have like used models rather than I have. Okay. Our experience. And I think in that regard, so I guess just for anyone else who's kind of like going through something somewhere. So one thing I would say is for projects, because they are grade-based, you kind of don't want to sign yourself up for too much. And for any scope, you assume your project's going to take an additional 20-40% the scope, because honestly, when you're learning a new skill set, that's about how long stuff takes is always like more than you think it is. Um, so I feel like in some ways I would just try to go for kind of the easiest minimum file product. Um, and one of those things I would recommend is looking at some example resources out there. So uh, Made with ML is a really good resource. Uh, he walks through what a MVP like model in production could look like. And it touches on the different elements. It touches on like traditional software engineering skills like thing and logging and writing in Python, it touches on how do you like deploy, how do you monitor, all these all these things. Like it, for class projects, like, do you ever need to go that much, that big? But it can't be something as simple as like develop a model, try to get a hosted someplace and have like a stream. Um, or it could be even something like a little bit deeper where, I don't know, you're trying to figure out the best way to ice, like a storage solution for Twitter or something like how would you like stream it and then how would you store it and how would you analyze it um but i always feel, I feel like that's a lot so i would say like look at it made with ml has like a really good overview of sort of like what a big data meaningless term um project could look like with ml another series that's really good so there's a website called confetti.ai which hosts these um like machine learning or data science uh like tests or exams or practices so if you're trying to interview, they have all these like different questions that you can kind of like put yourself on. They had this one like six part series, which was uh, essentially like, how do you create a Chrome in that identifies fake news? So 
Yeah, that one was a really good one. So uh, if you do like fake new plugin, like example with Confetti AI and for them a blog post, that one was really nice because also, first off, like a lot of the example projects I see, they they usually use Streamlit apps, which is nice. I think honestly, that's the best go. Um, this one took it a step further where the guy um, wrote a tutorial on how to, for example, if you're on a news article and you create this Chrome plugin, it'll show you, it'll highlight like the text and give you um, like a classification score or not, it's fake or um, whether it's fake or not. Um, and even though it's kind of like a dummy, it was a, it was a version, which honestly is the best part. Um, it was still like, I think a really, really well done uh, example. So I would recommend for anyone who's, do, who's starting like a big data or machine learning in production project to look at those two resources um, for an example, and then honestly scale down from there. Um, and usually going with cloud provider is decent because you can always get like student rates. Um, Colab, for example, has like a freemium sort of offering. Um, yeah, and honestly with the cloud providers, like they're all managed services of existence. So whether you go with Azure or AWS, uh, it really doesn't make a difference as long as you stick in that cloud provider. Like you don't want to be mixing a tool with a GCP tool. Just use GCP or use AWS or use Azure and understand that when you graduate and get a job anyway, they're going to make you use a different cloud provider. And you're just going to have to learn it again. So yeah. that's just like, um, that's just real life. That one, yeah, I think just choose a tool and uh, just go with it. I think a lot of them are, I mean, all of them kind of do similar functions. Once you pick up one, you'll be able to kind of go back and forth if your job allows it. But Gorsimran, I know you, you dropped for a little bit. Uh, Makiko offered you some, some great advice. Uh, after this call, we're going to be publishing it on uh, the Artists of Data Science and Harpreet's going to publish it on LinkedIn. Okay. So I definitely recommend going back and listening to it. And uh, you can always like messages or find somebody on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm sure Mikiko wouldn't be opposed to uh, helping out if you have any additional question. Um, but I don't want to sign Mikiko up for anything, but I know she's, she's nice. So um, let's see if Eric, you have your hand raised. Yeah, I just wanted to throw in, so, I don't know how you say your name, Gersim Ron, but I've got some band if you want to talk about this. Like this is this is like the part of like AI stuff that I've just like had my experience in and, and I, I love to talk about it too. So like if you want to like, if you want to like do a, a screen share and we could like make a diagram together, like I, I totally be down to help you. It's like some of the cloud for maybe scoping out what's what's reasonable to do. <laughs> like anyway, so. Mm -hmm. I would love to like, you want to do like afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah, like off of this, that'd be awesome. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. All right, this is what we're here for. Uh, guys should get connected, stay in touch, and help e help each other out. But this has been a lot of fun. We're almost at the top of the hour. Um, Want to thank everybody that was being here and gave me a chance uh, when her pre is is busy. Um, Give him some good feedback. If you think it's a good job, maybe he'll invite me back or maybe he'll ban me. Never be allowed on here again. We'll see what happens next Friday. And uh, a great man always says, you got one minute, why not try to make big? So thank you, everyone. Thank you for dropping in. Hope you have fun and uh, enjoy your extended weekend, those who have Labor Day off. So. And Eric, 
You will get your free books in mid to end when it pops. I pre-ordered it as soon as they caught in. I have your guys' names. I will be definitely sending that out. So thank you.